On the 12th of August 2020, a passenger train hit a landslip near Stonehaven in Aberdeenshire. Of the nine passengers, three were killed and the rest were injured. Uh, the Rail Accident Investigation Branch launched an investigation with its final report coming out in March of this year. The report made 20 recommendations, all of which are aimed at preventing the same thing happening again. Well, in this chapter, the focus is also on preventing a derailment. Uh, not in terms of a train coming off its tracks, but of the church coming off the tracks of its mission to the world. And while train derailments are usually unintentional, what we have in Acts 15 is a very deliberate attempt at derailment, and it comes from the evil one himself. What is the story of the book of Acts? It's the story of the, the gospel going out to the world. But of course that is something that Satan wants to stop. And in the last chapter, uh, chapter 14, he's tried to stop it through persecution. All believers came and stirred up crowds against the apostles, but they continued to preach the gospel. The next place they went, Paul was stoned and he was left for, for dead, but God delivered him. And the next day, he and Barnabas went to another city where they continued to preach the gospel. And that first missionary journey is wonderfully summed up in the words of, of verse 27, uh, the second last verse of the last chapter. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. The attempt to derail the church's mission through persecution had failed. But here in the next chapter we have another attempt to derail the church from her mission. Again it's Satan who's behind it. But this time the attempted derailment comes not at the hands of those outside the church but at the hands of those within it. And that is a pattern in Acts. When persecution fails in chapter 4, the devil tries false believers in chapter 5, and then division in the church in chapter 6. And the fact that Satan turns to this after outward attack fails tells us that it's more dangerous. This strategy of Satan often succeeds where other attacks fail. Inward attack is often more deadly because we don't see it coming and we're not prepared for it. When it comes to attacks from the outside, we're usually able to anticipate them. We have organisations like the Christian Institute telling us uh, what may be coming down the pipeline in, in terms of government legislation. If a law were to be passed banning some aspect of Christian belief or behaviour, we'll have known that it's coming, we'll have been praying against it, campaigning against it, and even if it is passed, we'll be ready for it to some extent. But when attacks come from the inside, we often don't see it coming. It can come completely out of the blue. Perhaps two people in the church suddenly fall out over something, probably something minor, but, but the whole thing escalates. People start taking sides and, 
and all of a sudden a huge issue has arisen. Uh, people are, are coming to church and walking on eggshells. Uh, people see other groups of people talking after the service. They think, are they talking about me? Or you could have a trusted minister or elder starting to teach things that are wrong. And we're just not prepared for that in a way that we would be if someone, say, sent us a, a, a video clip from a, a health and wealth preacher like Joel Osteen. Uh, we, we'd be watching that clip if we did watch it, thinking this is going to be wrong. Uh, but, but inside the church, we don't expect that. Attacks from the inside can be more deadly because we don't see them coming and we're not prepared for them. And they're also more discouraging than attacks from the outside. And they can do a lot more damage. They're more discouraging because persecution from the outside tends to galvanise us. If someone in our congregation was to lose their job uh, because of standing for a Christian principle or if they were to be arrested for sharing the gospel, we would rally behind them. Uh, that sort of outward persecution would bring us together. But by its very nature, division in the church divides us. And not only do, does inward attack divide and discourage us, but it harms the reputation of the gospel. In fact, the, the reformer John Calvin said that there is nothing that damages the gospel more than infighting. Because it does not only pierce and wound weak consciences, but also gives occasion to the wicked to backbite. Calvin was in Geneva, in Switzerland. He was sending men into France to preach the gospel, knowing that many of them would die for their faith. And we might say, well, Calvin, that's a pretty, pretty dangerous thing to do, to be, to be sending people into France to die for the gospel. But he says, far, far more dangerous when people in churches uh, with, with relative uh, safety, ease from persecution uh, are at each other's throats. There is nothing that damages the gospel more than infighting. We, we need to pray and work against it. Uh, so we're going to look at, at the, the attempted derailment in, in this chapter under, under three headings this morning. Uh, we're going to see who the attack comes from. We're going to see the mindset behind it. And then finally we're going to consider what's at stake. So, so today we're going to look at the attack and then next week, God willing, uh, we'll look at what the church does to counter that attack to make sure that by God's grace the train stays on the tracks so that the gospel continues to spread to the nations of the earth and so that the gospel message that, that the nations hear is, is a true gospel, not a false one. So firstly, this morning, who the attack come from, who it comes from. Now, hopefully it's already clear that this attempted derailment comes from Satan itself. But humanly speaking, where does it come from? Who were the people that were bringing this false teaching well, geographically, we could answer the question of where the attack comes from with the word Judea. Uh, look at verse 1. Things start off uh, with men coming from Judea, teaching the brothers that, that is, the Gentiles in this church in Antioch, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And don't miss the fact that these men were from Judea. That's really significant. Judea was where it all began. Judea, with its capital city of Jerusalem, was where the Holy Spirit had been poured out. In a sense, you could call it the mother church. Not that it had authority over all the other churches. Uh, we'll see, we'll, we'll see that, that next week, that, that one church doesn't have authority over the others. But this was where all the Christians had been before uh, the persecution had come and spread them out into Samaria and beyond. It's clear from the second half of verse 2 that most of the apostles are still in Jerusalem. Uh, We read in an earlier chapter how they were all scattered apart from the apostles. In fact, presumably all the original apostles are still in Jerusalem other than James, who was killed back in chapter 12. Uh, The only ones in Antioch where these false teachers arrive are are Paul, who who became an apostle after the others, and Barnabas, who is associated with the apostles, but isn't actually an apostle himself. So these men, in verse 1, are coming from the headquarters of the church in many ways. They're coming from where, where almost all the apostles are. Uh, they're described, these false teachers, in, in verse 24, by the apostles and elders as persons who had gone out from us. And even though they hadn't come with any authorization to say what they're saying, the very fact that they're from Judea would have been intimidating for these Gentile converts in Antioch. It's similar to how a, a new Christian might feel today if they, they heard somebody who'd been a Christian for a long time saying something unusual. The new believer might think, well, well I've never heard that before, but, but that person's been a Christian for a long time, and so they must be right. In a way, these false teachers would have been living off the reputation of the church that they came from. They came from Judea, they came from the mother church, And it would have been very hard for these Gentile Christians to stand up and say, I don't think that's right. It would have been very intimidating for them to question these men from Judea, never mind contradict them. I know of someone who was a minister and thankfully isn't a minister anymore. When someone questioned something that he said, he told them, I've been a Christian a lot longer than you. That there are others who, who might not say that quite as explicitly, but the impression they give us, how can you possibly question me? But we need to counter that sort of thinking. And so particularly if you're a new Christian, it doesn't matter where people come from, it doesn't matter what reputation they may have, don't assume that something is normal Christian teaching or behaviour just because the person who says it or does it has been a Christian a long time or on the basis of what family they come from or what church they come from. These Gentiles in Antioch, they would have assumed that these Jewish Christians who came from Judea knew what they were talking about. They, they just would have assumed that they came from the, the right place in a sense. They came from where, where all the apostles were, but they got it wrong. And in fact, listening to their teaching would have been deadly. Uh, 
So that's who the attempted derailment comes from, humanly speaking. It comes from people who we would expect to know what they're talking about, but they don't. And our only authority is God's word. But then secondly, today we want to think about the attitude behind the attack or the mindset behind it. So secondly, we see the mindset behind it. We're told the message that these people brought in verse 1. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And we'll get to the implications of that in our final point. But before we get there, I think it will be helpful to spend some time exploring the mindset of people who would come and say such a thing. You see, to, to most believers... Hearing about the conversion of the Gentiles brought joy. It was a wonderful thing. We see that here in verse 3. As Paul and Barnabas passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. And as they describe in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. It brings great joy to all the brothers. And that is actually part of the evidence as to whether you're a true Christian or not. Does hearing people's testimonies excite you? Surely there's hardly anything that we delight to hear more than the story of how God has turned someone's life around. Or or of how God has been with a a brother or sister in the trials that they've faced. But if such things don't excite you, if it would never cross your mind to ask a fellow church member how they became a Christian, then, then I worry for you. I've mentioned before how it was once said in a church in Scotland, we don't talk about being born again in this church. And when that is the case in a church, it's a sign that the church is either dead or dying. We need to talk about being born again, and not just from the pulpit, but with each other. So almost everyone hears about the conversion of the Gentiles and it brings them great joy. But sadly not for everyone. For certain of the Jewish converts in Judea, hearing about the gospel going to the Gentiles was not good news. At least not unless these Gentiles are going to start acting like Jews. These men from Judea arrive in Antioch and they're shocked at what they find. Here are people professing to be true believers and yet they haven't been circumcised. They are shocked. These Judean Christians had no category in their minds for someone who would be a Christian but not be circumcised. Maybe we think, well, how can you not have that category in your minds? But one of the reasons that we're not shocked by this is it's normal to us. But they had likely never known a Christian man who wasn't circumcised. It wasn't that he was circumcised after he became a Christian, but being brought up as a Jew, they all would have been circumcised. But now people are becoming Christians and yet they're still not circumcised. And these men from Judea are just shocked. And maybe this seems a million miles from what we're facing. But John Calvin has some really helpful comments here. Or at least I'm not sure how completely relevant they are to the situation in Acts 15. But it is relevant to a lot of situations. So I think it's worth sharing. 
Uh, Calvin explains a situation like this. He says that these people who had come down from Judea had seen circumcision observed in Jerusalem. And now, wherever else they go, if anything is done differently, they assume that it must be wrong. As if, he says, the example of one church did bind all the rest of the churches with a certain law. In other words, just because everyone in your church is circumcised, that doesn't make it a law for people in other churches. Especially since the the cultural situation of Antioch was very different from the church in Judea. Now obviously there are things that we believe that churches must do and that churches must not do. Particularly when it comes to, to worship. But Calvin is warning of the danger that if we've only ever seen something done one way, then if we see something done differently, we can assume that it must be wrong. Uh, I'll give you a couple of, of examples. In one of the churches that I did a, a ministry placement in, one week the minister decided to get the congregation to say the Lord's Prayer together. I have a friend who was visiting that week and he was shocked. He thought this is just vain repetition. This must be wrong. And at one stage in my life, I probably would have said the same thing. But I'd seen it done before. And I also knew that the larger catechism says that the Lord's Prayer is not only given for a pattern, but may also be used as a prayer. Based on the fact that Jesus says in the account of the Lord's Prayer in Luke, when you pray, say. Uh, So not just when you pray, pray pray like this, as as he as he says in Matthew, but when you pray, say, actually say it. Uh, So I think that's justification for for saying the Lord's Prayer together in church. But but if you've never seen that done uh, and it happens in church, you might be thinking, well, well, this is this is just wrong. We we shouldn't be doing this. Or perhaps you've only ever seen communion done as part of a communion season. Uh, probably true for most of us. Uh, and you, then you visit another church and they do communion once a month or, or even once a week. And it's just after the service w- without the rest of the service being particularly focused on it. Uh, and I've been in situations like that and, and it's, it's felt wrong. But actually I don't think there's anything I could point to about that way of doing communion and say, well, well this is wrong because... I could give reasons why I prefer one way uh, over another way, but we do have to be able to distinguish between preferences and principles. We have to be able to distinguish between the way we've always done something and what we can bind the consciences of other people to. Just because we've done something, just because we prefer something a certain way, does not mean we can bind the consciences of other people to it. And it doesn't have to be anything particularly theological. Once we get used to to something in church, we can assume that doing something different has to be wrong. But we have to do better than that. Uh, as elders, we need to be able to work through things and say, would it be intrinsically wrong to do that? Is there, there a biblical principle that that would breach? Or does it just seem wrong because we've never done it before? Uh, as members of presbytery, uh, and Acts 15 is, is the clearest example in the Bible of a presbytery, as we'll see next time. 
As members of presbytery, if, if we're elders and we're asked to assess something that another church is doing, we need to dis- be able to distinguish between principles and preferences. We can't come to every issue with the assumption that the way we do it here is the, the only right way to do something. We also need to, to train our children to make that distinction. Our children will inevitably grow up being used to a certain template of church life. But it would be easy to raise them with the unspoken assumption that everything different from that must be wrong. There are just too many examples of young people growing up in churches and never being converted and yet being perfectly able to condemn other churches for how they do things simply because that's not how their church did it. And they're not Christians. They don't, they don't believe any of it, but they, they condemn others. But how much better it is to train our children to actually think things through in light of Scripture. And to be able to distinguish between what is different and what is wrong. And so if they go to another church, that they'll be able to make that distinction. And if they go to another church and that other church is doing something that is wrong... That they know why it's wrong, not just because it's different. And if I sound like like a raving liberal here, you should read Calvin. He talks about the plague of making the things that we do into a law for other people. He talks about the, the perverse zeal by which nothing can please people unless it matches exactly what they do. I realize as well that I'm talking here about, about externals. I'm not talking, for example, about whether we sing psalms or not, but I'm talking about whether we sing three psalms or four or two. I'm talking about whether it would be irreverent to to sing a psalm without reading every verse of it aloud beforehand. I'm talking about what version of the psalms we sing. I'm talking about whether it's okay to to sing a couple of verses at the start and then, then a few verses at the end. Beware the tendency to turn our practice into a rule for others. And that's what's going on here. And that's the attitude behind this attempted derailment. They've only ever seen something done one way. They've only ever seen Christians who are circumcised and so they concluded, well, well every Christian must be circumcised. But the apostles will say no and uh, the reason uh, for that is clear when we see what's at stake. So that's our third point this morning. What's at stake? What is at stake here? Well, it's nothing less than the gospel itself. And that's another reason why, why Satan loves us to, to get distracted by little minor issues. Because if we spend so much time fighting over these minor issues, well then the gospel itself will get sidelined. The gospel is at stake here. I'll give you a sentence to, to, to try and help you understand what's going on here. It's not nine words, but if you get this, you'll understand what's at stake in this chapter. So what's happening here? Is that something optional is being turned into a salvation issue. Something optional is being turned into a salvation issue. It's really important to grasp that circumcision here wasn't wrong in and of itself. Would it have been wrong for a Christian man in Antioch to have decided to get circumcised? 
No, not in and of itself. How do we know? We'll just keep, keep reading uh, a few verses into chapter 16. Paul takes Timothy, the half Jew, half Gentile, uh, Timothy, and circumcises him. And maybe we're utterly confused by that. In chapter 15, we have a whole council of elders and apostles saying that if you go down the road of circumcision, you'd be to put God to the test. You have Paul writing to the Galatians, uh, probably just before the events of chapter 15 here, uh, telling them that if they accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to them. And then a few verses into the very next chapter, Paul takes Timothy and circumcises him. What is Paul being massively inconsistent? Well, no, because the issue isn't circumcision in and of itself, but the reason behind it. In Acts 16 verse 3, Paul circumcises Timothy so that he won't be a stumbling block to the unbelieving Jews. So that if he comes along and they know that he's uncircumcised, they just won't listen to him. But what those who come from Judea are insisting on is circumcision as being necessary for salvation. And that is completely different. Because it would be to introduce salvation by works. If someone has to be circumcised in order to be saved, then that is salvation by works. Someone might say, I believe in salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. But if, if they say that, uh, but they also say that Christians must be circumcised, then ultimately, that's what they believe will make the difference. Ultimately, they believe that faith in Christ isn't actually enough to get someone into heaven because they must have faith in Christ and be circumcised. Uh, and it's a, it's a subtle danger, uh, and it's a danger in Reformed churches. To look around at the Christian world around us and think, well, yes, of course, uh, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we do this, uh, and all those other Christians don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, and if you pushed us, we, we'd never come out and say that those other Christians weren't going to heaven. But we can act as if they weren't. We can talk about them as if they weren't. We can ha have no contact at all with them as if they were going uh, to a, a separate destination from us when they died. We, we can give that, that impression to anyone who hears us talk about them that, that they're not Christians, even if we wouldn't come out and say that. When we start giving the impression that faith in Jesus is all very good, but to be a real Christian, you need to also do X then we're, we're in Acts 15 and it's a very dangerous place to be because once you add on anything to faith in Christ, you've changed salvation by grace into salvation by works. Once you add anything, the, the tiniest little thing to faith in Christ, you've changed salvation by grace to salvation by works. We see that here in verse 5. These believers who are, are ex-Pharisees, uh, maybe not quite as ex-Pharisees as they should be, they, they stand up and say about these Gentile converts, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Uh, and the question is, what do they mean by that? What, what do they intend by that? Are they saying, are they intending to say that the Gentiles must be circumcised and then perfectly keep the whole law of God to be saved? 
Well, certainly that's the implication of what they're saying. But I don't think it's what they're intending to say. I I think all they're intending to say is that the Gentile Christians need to be circumcised and then keep the other Jewish ceremonies such as the distinction between clean and unclean food. So when they say law of Moses, I think that their intention is limited to what we call the ceremonial law, which is done away with in Christ. But what Peter sees here in verse 10 is the same thing that Paul saw in Galatians 5. And that is that every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. The moment you accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law, whether that is your intention or not. Those in Galatia didn't realise that until Paul pointed it out to them. They thought they could still believe in salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, plus circumcision. But Paul tells them that the moment they try to add in circumcision, they are severed from Christ and they have fallen away from grace. What do you think of, by the way, when you hear that phrase, fallen from grace? Well, we, we tend to think of someone who has done something outrageous, something scandalous. But in Galatians, falling away from grace is trying to add outward religious practice to faith in Christ. And so the, the yoke which Peter talks about in verse 10, it's the whole law. It, it's perfect inward and outward obedience to the moral law of God. In other words, if you think you're going to stand before God and point to any religious work that you did which distinguishes you from other people, then you better be ready to keep the whole thing. But no one ever has. The fathers in verse 10, that is previous generations of Jews, they were able to obey the ceremonial law, but they couldn't bear the yoke of the moral law. As one commentator says, the experience of Israel has borne out, generation after generation, the impossibility of a sinner meriting life by his obedience to the law's demands. The whole history of Israel is that we can't earn salvation by keeping the law. Psalm 14 that we're singing about, the the fool in his heart says there is no God. The, The Apostle Paul in Romans 3, he takes that and he says, this is all of us. So this is what's at stake. To take that knife and circumcise yourself as a way of trying to earn God's favour would be to turn your back on salvation as a free gift. And unless the church rejects such a teaching, it will be derailed. And next week, God willing, we'll, we'll see how the Holy Spirit guides the church to stay on the right track. But just as we draw things to a close this morning... I want to contrast the false teaching in verse 5 with the true gospel. Because these confused brothers in verse 5, and they are brothers, I think. They're they're called believers earlier in the verse. They say it is necessary to circumcise them. And that's wrong. It is not necessary to circumcise them. But that phrase, it is necessary, is used also in the Bible to describe the things that are necessary. So for example, Acts 17, Paul explains and proves to a synagogue of Jews that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. 
we don't need to cut off a piece of skin in order to be saved because the Son of God himself was cut off for us, cut off from the land of the living. So there you have the, the, the false gospel and the true gospel side by side. The false gospel says that you're saved by what you do. The true gospel says you're saved by what Jesus has done. And just as we finish, the, the same word, it is necessary, is used in Acts 16 where it's translated as must. The Philippian jailer, trembling, asks, what must I do to be saved? In other words, what is necessary for me to do? And the same question applies to all of us. It's not necessary for, for any of us to be circumcised. But what is necessary for us to do? What must we do? The answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. Well, we respond to God's word this morning by turning to the words of Psalm 21. Psalm 21, the first six verses on page 36. Singing about our great salvation, which we receive from the hand of Christ. He's the king we sing about in this psalm, who in verse 1 of Psalm 21 rejoices in the salvation he has won for his people. And in verse 6, forever he and we will be filled with joy before the face of our heavenly Father. Because of a salvation not earned, but gifted to us. So Psalm 21, 1-6, we'll stand and sing praise.